This is the third and final episode of the Historia Obscura miniseries about the Rwandan genocide. If you have not already listened to the first two episodes, I strongly recommend that you go back and listen to them, as they provide crucial background on the genocide. This episode includes very distressing descriptions of the crimes against humanity committed in Rwanda, so once again, listener discretion is advised. And for the final time, may such an event never happen again. July 15th, 1994. The Rwandan genocide came to an end, but the nation of Rwanda was left in disarray. Through both the murder and displacement of Rwandans, 40% of the country's population had been depleted, while hundreds of thousands of survivors were classified as vulnerable. Of these individuals, almost 40,000 were homeless, 29,000 were orphaned children, 50,000 were widows and widowers whose spouses had been murdered, 27,000 were permanently disabled, usually with severed limbs from machete attacks, and 22,000 were children and college students without access to education. The impact of the genocide was not exclusive to Rwanda. Fearing retribution by the predominantly Tutsi RPF for the genocide, over 2 million Hutu fled to Zaire in 1994, starting what is known as the Great Lakes Refugee Crisis. Many of the genocidaires and militiamen who participated in the genocide fled alongside these civilians, re-establishing the Interahamwa in Zaire. Fed up by cross-border attacks by the Interahamwa, Rwanda, now led by Paul Kagame and the Rwandan Patriotic Front, invaded Zaire to depose pro-Interahamwa President Mobutu Seze Seko. This conflict, the First Congo War, caused an estimated quarter of a million deaths, while the ensuing Second Congo War and ongoing Kivu conflict have collectively caused as many as 5.4 million excess deaths. Meanwhile, immediately following the end of the genocide, Rwanda had to deal with the issue of bringing those responsible for the atrocities to justice when there wasn't really any kind of justice system left. When the Rwandan genocide ended, an estimated one million people were considered potentially culpable in the genocide. However, there were only around 50 lawyers left in Rwanda by the time the genocide had ended, as most had either been murdered or fled the country. As a result, trials were carried out at a snail's pace, leaving over 130,000 suspects in overcrowded prisons for years. To supplement the fractured justice system, Rwandans established community tribunals known as Gakaka Courts where trusted local citizens oversaw impromptu trials of the accused. The Gakaka courts were hailed as a success by many for implementing a transitional justice system in the absence of official courts, but they have also been criticized for prosecuting suspects without legal counsel and only holding trials for atrocities committed by Hutu rather than Tutsi, in line with the Kagame government's narrative of the genocide. By the time the final Kakaka court trial ended in 2012, 1,003,227 suspects had stood trial with a roughly 65% conviction rate. In 1996, 
the official Rwandan judicial system opened up shop, and in four years, 3,343 cases were tried, with 80% of defendants being convicted and 20% receiving death sentences. However, most of these sentences would be commuted to life imprisonment, and on April 24, 1998, the 22 remaining perpetrators sentenced to death were publicly executed by firing squad at Nyamirambo Stadium in Kigali. The condemned mainly included politicians who used their government positions to aid the genocidaires, with the most notable being Frodwold Karamira, the oddly enough Tutsi leader of a Hutu power political party, who gave daily speeches on the genocide inciting radio station RTLM. No more death sentences were carried out after 1998, and in 2007, Rwanda abolished capital punishment. While the trials in Rwanda were pending, however, the United Nations held its first ever genocide tribunal. I'm going to tell you all about it, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 72nd episode of this podcast, as well as the third and final episode of the miniseries about the Rwandan genocide. If you have not already listened to the first two episodes of this miniseries, I once again highly recommend you go back and do so. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, Help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historia obscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. On November 8th, 1994, the United Nations Security Council passed Resolution 955, which established the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda by a vote of 13 to 1, with one abstention. Rwanda was the one nay vote, as the RPF-controlled government wanted to prosecute those responsible for the genocide on their own terms, while China abstained, viewing the prosecutions as a Rwandan issue. I could go on for a long time about the exact reasons why Rwanda opposed the ICTR, but it was mainly because UN tribunals don't carry out the death penalty, and because nations like France, which supported the government that carried out the genocide, will be appointing judges to the tribunal. Nevertheless, the ICTR was established in Arusha, Tanzania, and on January 9, 1997, the first trial began. The defendant, Hutu teacher and politician Jean-Paul Akayesu had fled to Zambia in the aftermath of the genocide before being arrested and extradited to the ICTR. Akayesu stood accused of 15 counts of genocide, ethnic persecution, murder, torture, and rape. The rape charges in particular were heavily contested by Akayesu, who argued that rape does not constitute genocide when it does not involve murder. Presiding Judge Navi Pillai rebuked this argument, stating, quote, From time immemorial, rape has been regarded as spoils of war. Now it will be considered a war crime. We want to send out a strong message that rape is no longer a trophy of war. 
Akiyesu was convicted on all counts and sentenced to life in prison. Now 69 years old, Akiyesu remains in prison in Benin. That same year, Jean Cambenda, who served as interim prime minister during the genocide, pled guilty to genocide charges, making him the only head of government in world history to do so. Kambanda and six other suspects had fled to Kenya after the genocide before being arrested in Nairobi. After pleading out, Kambanda was sentenced to life in prison, marking the first time since the Nuremberg trials that an international tribunal issued a judgment against the former world leader. Despite being interim prime minister, Kambanda, now 66 years old, was far from the top dog of the Akazu. The worst of the worst, those who organized the genocide, would soon have their days in court. Rwandan Army Colonel Theonest Bagasora, who seized power in 1994 and ordered the military to execute Tutsi, fled to Zaire alongside civilian refugees following the end of the genocide. After traveling to Cameroon to reorganize the Akazu, Bagasora was arrested in 1996. There was so much evidence of Bagasora's genocidal intent, which had to be submitted, that his trial didn't begin until 2002 and there were so many witnesses called to testify against him that his trial didn't end until 2007. Despite maintaining his innocence, Bagasura was found guilty of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, and he was sentenced to life in prison. However, this sentence was commuted to 35 years in prison in 2011. In 2021, Bagasura was transferred to a prison hospital in Bamako, Mali, for heart disease treatment. On September 25, 2021, Bagasura died from heart disease at the age of 80. Another genocidaire arrested in Zaire was Robert Kajuga, the leader of the Interahamwa. Kajuga was of partial Tutsi descent, but he posed as a Hutu using false identification cards, and he attempted to justify his involvement in the genocide by claiming that it was merely self-defense against the RPF. Nevertheless, Kajuga was convicted of crimes against humanity and sentenced to life imprisonment, dying in prison in 2007 at the age of 47 in Kinshasa Democratic Republic of the Congo. The founders of the Impuza Mugambi militia also faced trial at the ICTR. Jean Bosco Badayagwiza was convicted of genocide in 2003 and sentenced to 35 years in prison, which was reduced on appeal to 32 years. Badayagwiza died in prison in Benin of hepatitis C complications in 2010 at the age of 59, and his family has since accused the UN detention facility of denying him adequate medical care for the disease. The other Impuza Mugambi co-founder, Hassan Ngeze, was tried alongside Badayagwiza and was convicted of genocide incitement. Ngeze was famous for publishing The Hutu Ten Commandments, a notorious newspaper article that argued Hutu should, among other things, quote, stop having mercy on the Tutsi. Ngeze was sentenced to life in prison, but this sentence was reduced on appeal to 35 years. A 64-year-old Ngeze is currently serving his sentence in Mali. In addition to founding the Impuza Mugambi, 
Barayaguiza and Ngeze were tried together with numerous radio animateurs in what was referred to as the media case. The media case trial targeted the individuals who ran RTLM, the radio station that famously incited and supported the genocide by commanding its listeners to murder Tootsie. The primary target of this trial was RTLM director Ferdinand Nahimana, a once well-respected historian who oversaw the broadcasting of anti-Tootsie hate media. Nahimana was convicted of genocide incitement in 2003 and sentenced to life in prison. This sentence was reduced on appeal to 30 years, and Nahimana, now 72 years old, was released from prison in 2016. Most of the radio hosts themselves either escaped justice or were tried in Kakaka courts, rather than the ICTR. The most famous animator, Kenteno Habimana, died of AIDS complications while hiding in the DRC, sometime between 1998 and 2002. Valerie Bemeriki, the only female animator, was sentenced to life in prison by a Gakaka court. The 67-year-old Bemeriki remains imprisoned in Kigali, and she continues to argue that she was merely following orders. Noel Hitimana, a notoriously alcoholic animator who lost one of his legs in an RPF mortar attack, was sentenced to life in prison by a Gakaka court. Hitimana died in prison from an unspecified illness in 2002. The only prominent animateur tried at the ICTR was Georges Rougeau, and if that name doesn't sound particularly Rwandan to you, that's because Rougeau was the only non-Rwandan charged for his involvement in the Rwandan genocide. Born in Belgium to an Italian father and a Belgian mother, Rougeau befriended a Hutu living in Belgium and was subsequently drawn into the Hutu elite linked to Juvenal Habyarimana. Rougeau, colloquially known as the Muzungu, or white man, joined RTLM in 1994. He ran an anti-Tootsie radio show tailored to older Rwandans who were well-versed in European culture, as the show was delivered in French and contained European classical music, as well as Machiavellian political theory interspersed with Hutu power propaganda. Following the genocide, Rougeau fled to Zaire, then Tanzania, and finally Kenya, where he converted to Islam before being arrested in 1997. In 2000, after pleading guilty and testifying against other animateurs, Rougeau was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Rougeau was moved to an Italian prison halfway through his sentence, and in 2009, he was granted early release by the Italian government. Considering that this was done in violation of the ICTR sentence, this seemed to validate Rwandan concerns about having perpetrators of the genocide be tried internationally rather than by the Rwandan government. Ultimately, the media case marked the first time since the 1946 conviction of Nazi magazine publisher Julius Stryker that people were convicted of genocide for hate media. The final trial of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda was decided in 2010, when Leonidas Nshigoza was sentenced to 10 months in prison for contempt of court. On December 31, 2016, the ICTR closed up shop, 
officially shutting down and referring all future cases to the UN International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals. In total, 93 individuals were indicted by the ICTR for their connection to the Rwandan genocide. Of those charged, 62 were convicted, 14 were acquitted, 10 were referred back to the Rwandan justice system to be tried, and 2 died prior to being tried. Four fugitives, Fulhens Kaishema, Alois Ndimbati, Charles Riandikayo, and Charles Sikubwabo, remain at large. The U.S. government is offering up to $5 million for information leading to the arrest of each of these suspects. Until recently, there were five fugitives at large. However, on May 16, 2020, Felicien Kabuga was arrested in Paris, France after spending 26 years on the run. Kabuga, a multi-millionaire tea farm tycoon, was the primary financier of virtually every Hutu militia and RTLM. In fact, according to Georges Rougeau, Kabuga was the executive chairman of the radio channel. Perhaps most damningly though, Kabuga financed the importation of half a million machetes into Rwanda at the start of the genocide. Kabuga, now 89 years old, stands accused of genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, incitement to genocide, and extermination as a crime against humanity. In November of 2020, he pled not guilty to these charges before IRMCT Judge Margaret de Guzman, who previously taught at Rutgers Camden Law School in New Jersey. Yesterday, on September 29, 2022, the trial of Felicien Kabuga began. Kabuga was not in attendance. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura, as well as the miniseries, The Rwandan Genocide. In two weeks, we will be back with our regularly scheduled programming, hopefully on a lighter note. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off but not for long.